pull out those swords, that mighty word, the word we're going to see operating this morning in our passage. We'll pick up in chapter 4 and verse 31, and I want to give you a little vision here of what's going on. Now, as we left Jesus last Sunday, um, you might remember that he was about to be thrown off a cliff. Um, very often that's what happens when pastors teach the truth. They get thrown off the cliff metaphorically sometimes. In this case, they were trying to do it quite literally. Jesus is now going to travel a short little 16-mile journey from his hometown of Nazareth uh, down off the mountaintop that he lived on, the little valley in that mountaintop, down past Tiberias uh, and down to the little town of Capernaum. Now, in order for you to get a picture of where Jesus is heading, if you look at the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Gennesaret, and you were to map out the cities around it, there were nearly 240 towns that existed around this relatively small, what is called a sea, but is actually a lake about the size of Lake Tahoe, a little bit bigger, uh, but not much bigger. And so if you look at that lake, there were an awful lot of towns. I mean, they literally went from town to town to town to town to town. And a town then, uh, as I'm going to show you now, as we, as we look a little bit at the city of Capernaum, and these slides that I have up here from our recent trip, and uh, Capernaum was the town of Peter. And it was the town of Peter's mother-in-law, and it was essentially a fisherman's village. And so if you go there today, the homes, what we would call homes uh, today, were about 12 foot by 12 foot or so. That was the entire house. It was a very, very tiny space to dwell in. Uh, it was not some place that you would go, wow, this is a house with lots of rooms. Uh, in fact, as, as we look at this uh, particular town, the, again, as I shared with you, the next slide kind of shows that. That spaceship-looking thing, that's actually a Catholic shrine that sits over the top of Peter's house. And, and so that little tiny dwelling that's underneath there is kind of dark in there uh, was Peter's house, literally. And the reason they know that is because the artifacts that were found in it said that this was the house of Simon Peter. And so very, very certain, with a great degree of certainty, that this is actually Peter's house. But when you think about homes... Uh, you'll see in the next slide there, th that's, homes were basically a wall on one side, and then there was a wall on another side, and that was the back of somebody else's house, and they literally were back to back to back. And so as Jesus travels to Capernaum, what he's really going to do is he's traveling to one of the more settled cities. This is on the north edge of the Sea of Galilee. It's right near the water, and in fact, that spaceship-looking thing in Peter's house uh, if you had a good arm, you could throw a rock right into the Sea of Galilee. So very near the water. This was a fishing village, and so fishermen lived in a fishing village. And so every town, uh, almost regardless of size, if there were ten or more Jewish men who lived in the town, then there would have been a synagogue. Now on the next slide, you're going to see there was a mighty fancy synagogue, uh, in Capernaum. And so as you went to Capernaum, this was not the the synagogue of ten men. This was a synagogue of a very heavily bustling fishing village, one of the larger cities on the Sea of Galilee at the time. And so that is the exact 
synagogue that Jesus taught to study in. And so as you, as you think about it, it's still there today. You can go there and sit down very likely where Jesus and the disciples sat, where they heard this message is still in existence. Uh, I've wandered all around it and sat down in it. And Dr. Bramson, who's taught here a number of times, taught a study in there. Uh, but this village is still there. And so we have a very, very, very large body of archaeological evidence that tells us a lot about the life of the people who lived around the Sea of Galilee. And so this is the setting uh, for this message that Jesus is going to deliver. Now, it's extremely important uh, for us to understand that what rabbis would do is teach on Sabbath. And so we pick up now in our text uh, in verse 31, and before we do, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that... Uh, Jesus, you came that we might have life and that life abundant. And Lord, there are many today that are tormented. There are many today that are sick. And God, you're still in the business of healing the sick and delivering the tormented. And fathers, we see your son take these first steps in his ministry. God, we pray that you'd strengthen us with the truths that are contained in this part of scripture. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Verse 31, and it says here in chapter 4 of Luke's Gospel, as we pick up part 10 of our Savior's saga, and then he went down to Capernaum. So he travels from his mountaintop little valley there on the top of the ridge, 16 miles to the north, and down to the Sea of Galilee. That's why it says down. Some people think down is south. Uh, In this case, down was down. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Notice the plurality of the word Sabbath there. This was his habit. This is what Jesus did. Uh, He was going to build on what God had already shed uh, light on through the prophets and through the Old Testament, through what we would call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, what the Jews would call the Torah. They would also be teaching from some of the Tanakh, what we would call the whole of the Old Testament, all the way to the end of the prophets, Malachi. And so Jesus would be expounding on those scriptures. And they were astonished at his teaching. For his word was with authority. Now it's interesting because in our day and time we would call this anointing. In other words, there's a specific anointing that prayerfully is on those of us who share God's word. That we do it with some authority. That there's a speaking forth of that truth in other words. Now imagine that the speaker was the living word himself. You can imagine the authority with which he spoke. Every word directly from the word. And so he spoke to them. And now in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And I want to draw your attention to what's being said here. In in that day and time, uh, it appears that it was relatively commonplace for people to be possessed of demons. You have to also remember at that day and time, there were no Christians yet. That would come when Jesus died and they became identified as followers of Christ. And so these are all people who are right there on the verge of hearing the gospel message for the first time. And so the enemy seeking to snuff out any possibility for the gospel going forward, I believe at that day and time, was much more active in the demonic realm in a very specific way so that people were literally possessed of a demon. 
Do we still have people who are possessed today? I believe so. Uh, I have seen a few of them. I can tell you this. It is much less commonplace in the United States, but that is likely because, again, this is, for the most part, still a Judeo-Christian nation. But if you travel outside of the United States, specifically if you go to places like Haiti, you will see demonic possession all over the place. People literally possessed of a demonic spirit. And so Jesus is going to deal with this demon. And so he cried out in a loud voice, that is the man saying, notice the plurality, let us alone. There's not just one demon, but there are several, at least in the general vicinity, and they are tormenting this man. Let us alone. For what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? I want you to notice something here. Doesn't call him Lord. Because demons do not acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. They call him by his name. They knew him the way everybody else knew him. He was Jesus of Nazareth. Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so your Bible tells you that even the demons one day will announce that Jesus is Lord. At this point, they are not going to make that proclamation because they still believe that there's a chance that they're on the right side. There, as you read your Bible, specifically the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 12, you're reminded that when Satan fell, he took one-third of the host of heaven with him. And those entities, those demonic hosts, as we would call them, when they came to earth, they may well still be eternally resident, preparing uh, for what will be the final assault on mankind during the tribulation. So they're here. They're still powerful. They still have the capacity to torment. And we're going to get into a little bit of this this morning. And before I do so, I want to remind you, I'm not preaching demon, demon, who's got the demon here, okay? Let's make very clear. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in this world. And as the child of God, you have the power of God to resist any type of pressure, whether it's external or whether it's some other person that's near you. Whatever it is, you have the capacity by the power of the Holy Spirit, now resident in you as a believer, that this should not be an issue for us. However, at that time, these people were not saved, and they did not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and they were very susceptible to that much smaller population of earth, and however many of those angels that fell from heaven with Satan were resident on this earth, they had a whole lot less people to deal with, and so chances are they were far more prevalent at that time. And so Jesus speaks in verse 35, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, Shut up. It says be quiet, but it literally means stop speaking now. Speak no more. You have no authority in my presence. And come out of him. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't begin to speak in tongues. He doesn't begin to chant a mantra. He does not begin to speak to this demon in such a way as to rationalize with it or try and do something. He has supreme authority, speaks to the demon, says, shut up, get out. That's the power of Christ in you. 
please don't forget that. Because a lot of Christians walk around in weakness believing that somehow demonic forces have power to afflict you that is in essence equivalent to or at least someplace close to the power of Christ. And it's simply not true. The power of Christ is infinitely superior to any demon. And so Jesus simply says, stop speaking and get out of him. Now. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. And so it appears that this man had a very violent reaction. I will share with you, I have actually seen this. I have seen someone who's demon-possessed, who is literally thrashing around, uh, throwing themselves on the ground, harming themselves physically. And so it does happen. It's very rare in my opinion, here in America, but it is not very rare when you especially get to South America, to the Caribbean, places where people entertain and allow for and even pray to and seek out uh, demonic influence in their lives. Let me tell you something, folks. The demonic world is real. And if you are one of those people who watches demonic movies, who entertains demonic thoughts, who has demonic books, who reads things you shouldn't read, sees things you shouldn't see, you are messing with fire, even as a child of God. Not because you can be possessed, but you can be oppressed. In other words, externally pressed in on. You can invite this type of torment to be in and around your life in such a way that you may one day feel its effects from the outside, not the inside. And so he says in verse 36, And they were all amazed and spoke to themselves, saying, What a word this is. Amen. What a word this is. Jesus has that capacity, that power to speak that truth into your life. Lay hold of it, keep it, guard it, and use it. And so he says, For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. There is no mistaking what's being said here. There was not a process. There was an instantaneous speaking of the truth of the living word standing before this man who was demon-possessed and the demon lost, period. Keep track of that. Because there are a lot of people, well-meaning Christians, who preach something that frankly is unsupported with Scripture. And that is that Christians can be demonically possessed. That is an impossibility. It cannot happen. If you are truly a child of God, then you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and there is no question which one is more powerful, the Holy Spirit, which is God, or a demon, which is not God. For he goes on to say, And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. I assume so, and we're going to see in a moment. And I want to speak to this issue for a, a few minutes here. Basically what's being said here is the demon says in verse 34, let us alone. It's a cry. It's a scream. It's like, ah, leave us alone. We were doing fine until you got here. We, we had it going on with this guy. 
Leave us alone. It was a cry of terror. It was that last-ditch effort to say, you know what, we want to continue doing what we've been doing. Leave us alone. I want you to notice something. The demon doesn't call him master, doesn't call him Lord, doesn't acknowledge the fact that Jesus is far superior. The demon is basically crying out, you know what, we, we have our power. You go away because we know that you are greater, but we're not going to give you the honor due your name. And Jesus simply says, be muzzled. Stop it. You know, it, it's as if we all know our Bibles, and in, in the book of Revelation, we find out that Jesus holds the keys to the bottomless pit. You can almost see Jesus going, guess what's up for you? Time's up. I got the keys. And the demons are like, oh no! I can't believe he's here. That's your Jesus. He's not lacking any power. And by Him and through Him, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Jesus is simply making that evident. And He's doing this, remember where we're at in the timeline of the Gospel. The Gospel is now going forth. And so Jesus does these things to make sure that everybody gets the difference between the power of Christ and the power that was already in this world. So here's the difference. And so he's actually authenticating the words that he's speaking by doing these miracles. And that's why I believe they were far more prevalent at the time. The demons certainly knew who Jesus was. And, and as you read your Bibles, and as we've already covered in our study in 1 John 4, it says there in verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is God. Notice they don't call him the Christ. They just call him Jesus of Nazareth. They don't call him Messiah. They don't say Lord. So this spirit was a demonic spirit. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh, it says in verse 3 of 1 John 4, is not of God. That's the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, but is already now in the world. And so these guys are forerunners of the worst things that are going to come upon this world at a different time. And I want to talk just a few moments on this whole concept of, of what role uh, do demons play in our world today. And I don't want to sensationalize. I simply want to bring to your attention that demons do still play an active role on this earth today. Many Christians have been taught otherwise. And frankly, it's just foolish because your Bible teaches that the demonic hosts are still here and will be here until the Lord Jesus wraps them all up in chains and tosses them in the bottomless pit. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. And so what we do see in our world, because many people do call Christ Lord and are saved and do have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, what we do have in the world is a lot of Christians who, I believe, set themselves up to be tormented demonically. 
not possessed, but tormented, because they've made a choice to engage in behaviors that open the door for the demons to do their work. And I will share with you in a moment. Demons are nothing more than evil spirits. They're angelic beings who joined in the rebellion against God, uh, which we have described there in Revelation chapter 12. But there is, a, there is a place that they still do have some activity in the lives of believers, and that is oppression. That is that external harassment. It can be the result of you opening a door uh, that, that allows them to torment you. And let me give you a few things that I believe will help demons torment you. The movies you watch. The television you watch. The friends that you entertain and the habits that you have. And if you choose to walk in sin, you are opening yourself up to that which is a force that wants to destroy you, but can't because you are a child of God, but they can absolutely harass you endlessly. And when you fill your mind with thoughts that they can rebound off of and then take and use to their advantage, you fall into their at least influence externally. And so it is a very dangerous thing, and it drives me nuts when I see people playing video games that are filled with demonic activity, when I hear people watching movies that it's just like, why would you ever want to watch that? Because what happens is, in your sleep, there you are, your mind is not being actively overcome by your own resisting the devil, you're simply open to thought, and, and there they are using those things which you've taken in to actually beat you up. Please, in Jesus' name, stop doing those things. Hanging around with people who don't know the Lord accomplishes the same end. You can be oppressed by where you place yourself in this world. That's why we have been called to be sanctified, made saint-like while we're here on this earth. You are supposed to resist the devil and you are supposed to flee temptation if you want to have the best result of walking with Christ. If you do not do those two things and you walk instead after your flesh and feed your flesh whatever it wants because it will want these things, I, I can't believe how many Christians own Ouija boards. I can't believe how many Christians think that it's okay to go see Madam Whoever because they want to know what their lucky numbers are so they can go play their stupid lotto. You are opening yourself up to demonic oppression. That is the world system. And if you entertain the world system, you will suffer the consequences of playing with the world system. And so what you'll have then is abnormal fear and irrationality, abnormal anxiety. You're going to open your mind up to be afflicted by those things which you have willingly associated yourself with. So in Jesus' name, stop associating with the world. Amen? You have to do it, folks. I see so many Christians who walk around in guilt and fear and shame and persistent depression and lack of self-control and all of these things that I believe are the result of us playing with fire in a large part. Are you possessed? No. Are you oppressed? Very likely. Because you've said yes to a stronghold of the enemy. 
You, you know what? You want to get your mind messed up, gentlemen? Go view some porn. Go places where your brain shouldn't go, and then the enemy has the opportunity to afflict your mind with thoughts you would not otherwise have. We need to be set apart, sanctified, outbursts of wrath and hatred, a loss of the fear of God. These things are all, I believe, directly the result of the affliction that we can have from placing ourselves in essence, in harm's way. In military jargon, do you want to walk the point yourself, or do you want to have Jesus walk the point for you? I want Jesus walking the point for me. I do not want to be first in line. I don't want to be the initial attack. I want him to be in front of me and me behind him. I am perfectly okay telling you I am scared to death of demonic activity. I don't want to be anywhere near it. So I don't want a stronghold. As Ephesians chapter 4, when we were there in verse 27, give no place for the devil. Is that simple enough for you? No place. It means don't give him a toehold. I can tell you as a rock climber, it doesn't take much to make a toehold. It just takes enough to get a toe on it, okay? And that's what Ephesians is, that's what Paul was saying in Ephesians. Make sure it's so slickly clean and you are so saintly and sanctified, there's no place for the enemy to stand in your life. He's going to slip and fall off on the absolute majesty of Christ. But we don't do that. And so we do get attacked in our minds, and we do have our hearts afflicted, and we do go through completely irrational thought processes because we've allowed a foothold of the enemy in our lives. And let me give you a couple of things this morning. One is persistent sinful activity. You want to know why one of the reasons it's so important that we live holy lives? Persistent, sinful activity opens the door for you to be oppressed demonically. Because you are now serving two masters. And the other master is trying to take over from your real master who is Jesus. And so you have this conflict that works within you because of that. Please don't do that. The more like Jesus you are, the less room the enemy has to work in your life. This man was literally possessed. But don't play with the edge of that by being oppressed because you're helping the enemy. He does not need any help. Okay, He's perfectly capable of tormenting you without your help. Very often we get into relationships that cause demonic oppression. I cannot tell you, if you are entertaining, if your children are entertaining, marrying someone who's not a believer, and they know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are opening yourself up for demonic oppression. Because you have two lords in the house then. One, Jesus is Lord, and the other is maybe that person is Lord, or the world is Lord, or money is Lord. You now have the ability for the enemy to work. That's why your Bible says, Be ye not unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Not in business, not in marriage, not in your practices that you have in your leisure time. You need to set yourself apart if you want to have as little conflict as you can possibly have while you're on this earth. 
Now, does that mean that you have to abandon any contact with unbelievers? Of course not. But you should be very careful that you are leading them to Christ. They're not leading you to Satan. Addictive strongholds. Things that we allow into our lives. Drugs, alcohol, sexual sin. Those things that can draw you in, suck you in. You want to have somebody really mess with your head. You want to give a demon an opportunity to do that. Then engage in sinful behavior. Because now he's got something to use against you. Remember who Satan, their boss, is. He is the accuser of the brethren. He loves nothing more than to look at your life and go, See, you do that all the time. You're not actually saved. I can't tell you how many Christians have walked away from their relationship with God because they have so engaged in in behaviors that allow that oppression to come to them that they begin to believe the lie. Now all of a sudden they're walking in it. Like, I don't know how I got here. Well, it's because you've been doping your mind up with drugs. It's because you've been engaging in sexual sin. It's because you have been an alcoholic. You're, you're sitting there just immersed in the very things that allow the enemy to gain a foothold. And he does. People frequently then have a huge issue with their loyalty. Loyalty to other believers. They don't, you ever noticed how when people give in to the enemy, the first thing that goes is their trips to church. The second thing that goes is their own individual devotion and prayer life. The third thing that generally goes is their own reliance on other people who have a Christian worldview for their counsel. They start talking to anybody and everybody. When you see those things happen, let me be blunt, there's a good chance you have a stronghold that you've allowed in your life for the enemy to be working from. He's got a toehold. He's got some place in your life that you are being afflicted. And you're letting him do it because of something in your life that you will not forsake. Don't give the enemy that opportunity. Flee it. Unless you want to be feeling like you're hopeless and helpless. All of these things, by the way, are in essence wrapped up in in what Scripture calls the spirit of rebellion. Satan fell because he rebelled against God. Now let me be blunt. Everything that is not of God is not of God. It's rebellion. It's going the wrong way when you know the right way. And every bit of that, your Bible says, is as the spirit of witchcraft. It messes with your mind. So when you see those things happening, the reason that you're tormented is because you've opened the door. You've said, go ahead. Here, I'm going to have a couple more drinks. Slap the tar out of me. I'm going to do a little more drugs. Go ahead and pound my head a little bit. I'm going to go ahead and stay in this sexual sin, so you go ahead and slap me around, because that's what I want. Don't do it. Because many have traveled that road, and they're not with us today. Be strong in the Lord, the power of His might. Read your Bible regularly. Stay in fellowship. Get in fellowship. Be in fellowship. Hang around other believers. Make sure you have a vibrant devotional life. This is not a devotional life, by the way. 
This is church. I am teaching you. You need to hear from God yourself. You need to open your own Bible, sit down and say, God, speak to me. You need to have a prayer life. Your prayer life is not me praying for you. It's you praying for you. That's how you deal with strongholds. Don't listen to those lies because they're going to come. Pray continually. And I'm going to give you a simple path to follow. Confess, repent, and renounce. That's it. You find yourself someplace you're not supposed to be, 1 John 1, 9. We confess he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. Amen? Confess it. Repent means to turn around, go the other way, agree with God, change direction. Okay? Very simple. Confess it. Tell him, I was wrong, God. Don't want to do that. Please forgive me. And then turn around, go the other way. And then renounce it. Say, you know what? I'm not going there again. You get to step three and something happens, go back to step one. Real simple. Start over. Don't let the enemy tell you that you can't start over again. Your Bible says in Matthew 18 something very different. He forgives endlessly as long as you repent. He's not looking at, well, you know, five times, that's it, you're out. You're out of the kingdom. Sorry. Peter actually used seven. It's not seven. It's 70 times seven. It's infinite. It's myriads of times. It's as many times as you're genuinely repentant. That's how many times you'll be forgiven. But don't give, the, don't give in. Don't say, I can't. I can't tell you how many Christians are self-defeating in this area. Well, you know, I just don't have victory. Part of the reason you don't have victory is you keep giving the enemy the tool to beat you up. Another part of the reason you don't have victory is you don't ask for victory. You want to play with it. You want to dabble. You want to see how close you can get to the line. And when you do that, you are asking to get slapped around. I, I remember watching some of Muhammad Ali's last fights. I watched the thriller in Manila. And I'm sitting there watching this. Oh, man. You could not, if you gave me all the money, I'm not getting in the ring with that guy. Because no matter where I go, he's just going to knock my head right off my shoulders. It's just going to be gone. The enemy is powerful. Don't volunteer to get in the ring with the enemy. And I'm not calling Muhammad Ali the enemy, by the way. Purely an allegory. But do recognize that the enemy knows exactly what to do, and he's stronger than you. So take up the tool. Take the whole armor of God. Amen? All of it. Don't just put on the helmet of salvation. Well, I'm good. You need the feet shot with the gospel of peace. Amen? You need the breastplate of righteousness. Amen? You need the sword of the Spirit. You need the shield of faith. Amen? And then stand. Remember what Paul said. Having done all to stand. Stand, therefore. If you do that, you'll give no place to the devil. Verse 38, and very quickly here. And now he rose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house. So he walks that scant 50 yards from the synagogue to Simon's house is about 50 yards, 150 feet, maybe from the front door of the synagogue. Very close. But Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever. And they made request of him, that being Jesus, concerning her, that's his mother, Peter's mother-in-law. And so he stood over her and rebuked the fever. Notice again, 
Not that God can't use doctors and doesn't use doctors, but in this case, you have Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, God, the third person of the Trinity, standing over him saying, you know what? You're out. And it left her. And immediately she arose and served him. And when the sun was setting and all those who were sick with every and various kinds of diseases were brought to him, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. Now you can imagine, this is a healing service here. This is, this is not like Benny Hinn. This is the real deal. This is like they came in one side, of, and you saw the house. It's not very big. They came in through one door and, you know, turned around inside. Jesus touched them, boom, back outside. Some miraculous things that God alone can do. And it was testifying to who Jesus was. Very specific at that time. And the demons also came out of many. And it seems to indicate that some of them were sick because they were possessed of demons. That there was a combination of those two things. So be very careful about what you allow in a foothold sense in your life because sometimes that can make you physically ill as well. I wonder how many people are physically ill because they've actually allowed themselves to be tormented by the enemy and weakened and degraded in condition, have not sought the power of the living God. And then notice what they said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, we don't know if this is the same demon that was over in the synagogue or not, but we know this, they're starting to get the picture. They are not crying out as though you are my Christ. They're just simply acknowledging this guy is exactly who we've been fearing all along. And he rebuked them, saying, and he did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. In other words, Jesus himself says, you know what, I don't want anybody confused here, so you guys, again, shut up. This is all about me. This is about who I am. My power to do exactly what I came to this earth to do. And so you will be quiet right now while I validate what it is that I came to do. And now when it was day, so the Sabbath has passed, the sun is rising, he departed and went to a deserted place. He went for a little staycation. <laughs> I don't know where he went. We, we believe that he went someplace along the shore. There are a number of places that he could have gone. But I want to tell you who went, and in this I want to leave you with as we finish this. And he sought uh, to go to a deserted place, and the crowd sought him out. You know, they're just following him. It's like, man, he just went and healed all these people. And so everybody's like, man, I got a sick cousin, and my wife is this way. My kids are like that, and they're just following him. I want you to notice something very specific. And the crowd sought him and tried to keep him from leaving them. They were actually following him for the wrong reason. They were following him because he was healing people. Getting healed doesn't save you. It's Jesus Christ as Lord saves you. Miracles don't save you. It's Jesus Christ as Lord that saves you. The gospel being preached, notice what Jesus said, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, because for this purpose I've been sent. He's drawing a very specific analogy here. He says, all these healings I'm doing so that you can know I'm God. I am who I say I am. And as I do these things, it's validating that I have the power that I claim to have. But I want you to know something. I could heal you all day long, and you could still die in your sins. 
I could touch you every moment of every day. I could give you money and power and all the things that you want, and you would still die in your sins. I came to preach the good news, the gospel. That God loves His people. That God wants to save us from ourselves. Bring us into a right relationship with Him. And He was preaching in all the synagogues. And so that you understand, I don't know what Jesus did. Did He just speak to some virus or speak to some bacteria? or what? You know, I don't know. I don't know what He did. But I know who it is that did it. And as we look at some of His names we realize exactly the power that Jesus has. He's fully God. When you see El, the shortened transliteration of the Hebrew word, that means God. When you see Elohim, that is the plural, meaning two or more. It means God in at least two persons or more. So when he's called Elohim, it's a reference to his power and to his might. When he's called Adonai, it's Lord Master, he was acting as Yahweh Adonai. He says, look, I I can do anything I want. Get out. I control this situation, and I alone control this situation. He was acting as Jehovah Yahweh. He, He says, I came to preach the gospel. I, I want you to understand that. I can save you. Not just your mortal body, because that's going to perish one day. I can save your soul. That's why His name is also Jehovah Makashadem. The Lord who is our sanctifier. The one who can make us right before God Himself. You see, that's who's speaking to these people. That's who's touching these people. He is Jehovah Rohi. My shepherd. They're following him around like a bunch of sheep. You see, what he was saying to them is, the real important part is, yes, I'm Jehovah Shammah, the Lord who is eternally present. And yes, I am Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who is our healer. I'm Jehovah Sidkenu. The Lord is my righteousness. And I am Jehovah Jireh, and I will and do provide. But don't get hung up on just Jehovah Rapha. It's not enough that you be healed. You have to be sanctified. You have to be made righteous. Jesus was all those names wrapped up in one. Yahweh is salvation. That's what His name means. Emmanuel, God with His people. So what he was really saying is, I healed Peter's mother-in-law, and all these people have been coming through the door. But you know what's most important? That you hear the gospel. That you hear the good news of the kingdom that is to come. And you see, that is why he did the miracles in the first place. Is so that when he preached the gospel, everybody go, I want that. Because now it's personal to me. That same God who is Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord is our righteousness, now is my breastplate. Amen? That same God who is 
all of these wonders. He's Jehovah Nisi, our banner. He's Jehovah Shalom. He is our peace. He's all these things. So that He can save us. Amen? Don't miss that. The miracles are awesome. Miracles are wonderful. It's grace that saves. It's His Lordship that matters. That's why when people tell, oh, I'm going to some healing service. Well, if it's real, I, 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 okay. But are you going to see the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? That's all I care about. Amen? Because I'd rather die with a twisted body with all kinds of cancer and have Christ than to die without Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning. and Lord Jesus, thank You for the time that You took to just minister to these common folk, Lord, these, these people who lived in a little fishing village called Capernaum. Lord, we thank You that You took time to touch each one and heal them where they needed it. Lord, all so that they might know that You are God. And so, Lord, as we see Your work in our lives, May we never attribute that to just simply miracles, but to the miracle maker, the one who is our peace, the one who is our strength, the one who is everlasting, who will be here in the beginning and will be here in the end. Lord, we, we thank you that you are eternal and that by you and through you, for those who call upon your name, will be saved. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.